And because my field of study is in the Puritans, we thought we'd do a couple messages on the, how the Puritans saw the family and then the importance they placed on family worship tomorrow night. And then we'll go from there in the evenings. And then in the mornings, we're going to be looking at a theme which we've called Amazing Grace, The Favor of the King. If you want a subtitle, it's basically how great it is to be in a covenant relationship with God through Christ. But tonight, if I yawn during my own message, it's not that I find myself particularly boring, but it's almost 10.30 for me, because I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and this is my bedtime, because ESPN is already closing down shop, and so it's time to turn out the lights and and get to bed. Uh, when people ask me to speak, they say, what, uh, what perks do you need? I said, I need a non-smoking room and ESPN, and a bed is optional. <laughs> but I took this one, even though there's no ESPN. But before we talk about how the Puritans saw the family, it might be helpful just for some to say who the Puritans were. Um, we have a terrible, terrible inadequacy in our knowledge of church history. Many of the groups that I speak to think that the church began when, on Billy Graham's birthday, and there was a significant church going on before that. I was telling my friends at dinner how that I was just in England doing a, a little tour where I was trying to visit as many of the churches that the Westminster Divines came from as I possibly could, and uh, we think in terms of history as ancient, being 200 years old, and they think in terms of 2,000 years. One of the churches, all, most of the churches of England list all the pastors they've ever had since the church was started. And one little church along the English Channel I stopped at, the, f- the name of the first pastor was Joseph of Arimathea. <laughs> now that is history. And they can take you to the place where Augustine came across the English Channel and preached the gospel in the 4th century, bringing the gospel to Angle land way, way back when. And when you go under the, into the catacombs at places like York Minster and see the Roman pillars that have been there since the 800s, you realize the church has been around for a long, long time, and it's uh, to our shame that we don't know much about its history. Uh, Here in America, if you mention the term Puritan, it's somebody like Hillary Clinton, who is a class A theologian in her own right, uh, everybody assumes, saying things like, well, we're not Puritans, and she says it with pride, and she should say it with shame. Or you have somebody like Hugh Hefner saying we don't go along with that puritanical sex ethic, or people think only in terms of the Salem witch trials, and this is the question I'm always having to answer, what about that? And I said, what about the 1,100 witches that were burned in England for the 100 years before that that nobody ever seems to talk about? Uh, They were just carrying on something that had been done for years, but the Puritans, historically and accurately, were a group of English clergymen in the Church of England who saw, because of the politicization of the church, uh, you know, the reason that the king of England is the head of the church is because he declared himself to be so after the pope excommunicated him for marrying 
after he had uh, divorced his wife. And so he decided he wasn't going to sit still for that. So he excommunicated the Roman church, declared himself the head of the Church of England, and yet he married a Roman Catholic wife. And so the Puritans saw the Church of England becoming more and more Romanish all the time. And uh, if you ever want to see a good depiction of this, you could watch the movie that was made about 20 years ago with Richard Harris called Cromwell, which would give you a good idea of what all that was about. But that's why in the Westminster Confession it says that Christ alone is the head of the church, because they were saying no pope is, no king is, Christ is the only head of the church. Well, these were men who wanted to purify the Church of England and getting it back to its biblical standard. What have they done for us? They gave us cell phones. They gave us pagers. I'm convinced that it is one of God's choice gifts to the church that he did not allow the computer to be invented until after the Puritan era. Knowing what Jonathan Edwards and John Owen alone could have produced, it would have fulfilled the verse that the world could not contain the books. The Puritans gave us the Westminster Standards, which is the guide that we go by after Scripture. They gave us the Confession of Faith. If you want to know, they they met from 1643 to 1649. And if any of you have ever been a ruling or a teaching elder, you can just think of it this way. It was a six-year presbytery meeting. They gave us the Confession of Faith. They gave us the larger catechism. They gave us the shorter catechism. And they gave us the Directory for Public Worship, which we call the Westminster Standards, which the Napark churches or all the Reformed churches accept as the guide for faith after the Scripture, not on the same level with the Scripture by any means, but codification and simplification of biblical doctrine. By the way, how many of you have memorized the Shorter Catechism? Can I see the hands here? A couple of the adults... None of the few of the children. That's the one with, uh, what, about 144 questions in it? 107, and how many hundreds in the larger one? Several hundred, isn't it? Not that many more? Well, on the original edition of the first shorter catechism, it says on the title page for infants and children. And they just assumed that if God gave you a brain and enough air to get to it, you ought to be able to memorize those 107. And that shows you what pygmies we are spiritually as adults compared to the children of the 17th century. Well, that that was the Puritans. They were grandchildren of the Reformation a hundred years or so after the Protestant Reformation. They lasted about a hundred years until the Church of England kicked them out and legislated them out of existence. And that's why so many of them came to America, which was to our, uh, certainly our advantage and our gain. The great John Owen was asked to be the first president of Harvard, but the king wouldn't let him leave the country, figuring he was a national treasure. But that's why we got men like John Cotton and Thomas Hooker, who founded Connecticut. Uh, It was my great joy with trembling to go to the town of Boston in England 
to St. Botolph's Church and stand in the pulpit that Cotton himself preached from in 1612 before he came to America, and they're still using it every Sunday. It's also interesting to find out that the name Boston comes from, it was originally Botolph's Town, and as we are want to do, we tend to slur our words when we talk fast, and Bottleston, Bottleston, Bottleston pretty soon became Boston, and that's where the name Boston came from. The Puritans were strong believers, and this will be important in this message tonight, strong believers in what is called the regulative principle. They lived by the idea, <coughs> excuse me, that if you couldn't find it in Scripture, you couldn't be bound by it, but if it was in Scripture and there was a Scripture warrant from it, for you not only could be bound by it, but you ought to be dogmatically tied to it. Now, this was particularly in the area of worship, that a person who goes by the regulative principle of worship will say this, as the Puritans do, if the Scripture doesn't command it, we don't do it. The other side of that is what is called the normative principle that says this, if the Scripture doesn't forbid it, it must be okay. And all kinds of error has crept into the church by those who say, well, you can't find a verse that forbids it, it must be okay. But at least if you stick to what the Scripture commands, this is what the Covenanters do. The Reformed Presbyterian Church North America only sings the Psalms because they say if we're singing Scripture, we know we're not singing any error. And I often speak in churches where I have to chastise them for the heinous theology of the songs they're singing. I'll just give you one example. This was in a PCA church in uh, Indiana a few uh, couple months ago where they were singing this song, I Surrender All. And I told them that was a lie and that God is not particularly praised or honored by singing lies to him. I said, I realize that nobody will be impressed if you sing, I surrender some. But still, not a person in that congregation had surrendered all at any point in their life. Or they were singing that little chorus. And this is the problem that the, at least the hymns of old or the Psalter paraphrases were written by great theologians. Today, the choruses are written by musicians with barely Sunday school degrees. And so they were singing this song, I sing for joy at the works of your hand. Forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand. And I said, you're a bunch of liars. I said, you can't promise Jesus Christ that you'll love him forever and that you'll never fall. I said, that's what Peter said just before that little girl came and accused him of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And he ran screaming into the woods. And so we... Uh, to make sure, well, that's what the Puritans would do. As the late John Gerstner said, that somebody accused him of splitting hairs on a theological matter. He said, if it means the difference between heaven and hell, I'll not only split the hairs on someone's head, but I'll dissect the dandruff to help them find the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's what the Puritans will, would do. So when we come to the issue of the family, the Puritans would ask this question, do we have Scripture families? Or do we only have moral families? 
Well, the Puritans looked at the Scriptures and they saw only two organisms, only two institutions that had been created by God to spread the gospel, and those were the family and the church. And as soon as God put Adam and Eve together in a family unit, he also began the church, and Adam was the pastor to his little flock. The Puritans saw the family as a little church. They were strong believers in the family. And in the back of your uh, books there, there's a recommended reading list, and I assumed that all these books were going to be here, uh, but we're going to try to get them here tomorrow <coughs> so that you can avail yourselves of them if you like. Uh, this quote comes from Cotton Mather's booklet, The Well-Ordered Family. He says, Families are the nurseries of all societies. The Puritans believed in marriage. They believed that it was an honorable institution, and that if the marriage bed was undefiled according to Scripture, then marriage itself must be an honorable institution. Robert Abbott said, Marriage in the Lord is a covenant of God whereby all sorts of fit couples. That's an interesting phrase, fit couples. Someone has said it ought not to be so easy to get divorced, it just ought to be much harder to get married. <clears throat> fit couples may of two be made one flesh. And then here are the reasons to get married. First of all, to multiply a holy seed. Secondly, to avoid fornication. And thirdly, to comfort one another. Now those are interesting expectations for marriage, particularly if you compare them today. <clears throat> I think people, when they take marriage vows should have to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When people take vows, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? The words that come out of the mouth are, I do, but there is unspoken all kinds of things in parentheses, usually prefaced by these words, as long as... And I think they should have to say all that. As long as he doesn't get fat. As long as he doesn't grow hair on his back. As long as he doesn't wear those Italian garbage man t-shirts. As long as he shaves on Saturdays. Etc., etc., etc. Do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? I do. And he should have to say his as long as. As long as she doesn't get wrinkles. As long as she looks 30 the rest of her life. As long as there are no stretch marks after children. As long as she never takes the remote away. As long as, as long as, as long as. But the Puritans' expectation for marriage was much different than we have today. And did you notice <clears throat> that in those things, communion with another person to raise godly children, a protection against sin, and mutual companionship, <clears throat> the idea of finding somebody who is hot is conspicuously absent. Why do you want to marry that person? He's so hot. 
Nothing like that was ever thought of. Excuse my voice, I'm not sure why that's happening. I remember that someone came to Jonathan Edwards and asked him, perhaps someone could get me a cup of water or something, um, to marry his daughter, and he said no. And the man said, am I not good enough for him? He said, no, she's not good enough for you. Oh, that parents would do that today. He says, I love you too much to inflict that woman on you. William Thomas said that there, this is going to sound terrible on the tapes. Don't pay $25 for this voice. There are three requirements for marriage. One is zeal in religion. The second is patience in all occasions. And the third is wisdom. Excuse me while I clear my voice. I don't know if that's an allergy or not. They saw marriage in noble terms, but they weren't unaware of how hard it is to have the kind of marriage of which Scripture speaks. William Thomas said this, The duty of the married state is as difficult as the dignity of marriage is great. You're putting two sinners together, and that makes it difficult. This is what Elizabeth Elliot said to her daughter, in a little booklet she wrote to her about getting married. She said, he won't fold the towels in threes. He's not going to put the soap back where it was. He's not going to wash the sink down after he shaves. He's a man, not a woman, and he's a sinner. And so are you. That would be good advice. What God wanted, as the Puritans saw it, was a well-ordered family. That was a common phrase. Matthew Griffith defined it this way, one that has an orderly head and orderly members. Orderly members depend upon the head and say, I will go where you go. Just so subjects are they to the head of the family in the service of God. There was a man who was the head of the house. The reason they believe that is because God said so. There was a warrant from Scripture from it. The man is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. So they felt strongly then that the man is the head of the wife. And you wouldn't hear any talk like you do today about mutual subjection. That's a common thing in evangelical circles. They say that the passage says, let all be subject one to another. So there must be mutual subjection then. The husband is to be as subject to the wife as the wife is subject to the husband. But the Puritans would point out that in the context, that's in the church, and that would mean that Christ is as subject to the church as the church is to Christ, which is not true, because that's the picture. It would also mean then that children are as parents are as subject to the children as the children are to the parents. Now, in many homes, that's true. One man I heard quit that when someone calls a salesman and says, can I speak to the head of the house? We ought to hand the phone to the kids. But that wasn't the way it was in a Puritan family. The man was to be the provider because the Scripture says, he who does not provide for his family, his house, 
is worse than an unbeliever. And there was nothing worse to the Puritans than being an unbeliever. I remember the first church I took as a pastor, a little country church. They offered me $12,000 a year. I turned it down. And they said, why? And I said, because I can't provide for my family on $12,000 a year. And the Scripture says a man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. So I could accept your offer to be your pastor, which I want to do, but by not providing for my family, I'd prove to you you just hired an unbeliever. Some of them never got over the shock of that. The man's duty was to love. The woman's duty was to respect because those were the biblical commands. His job was to order the house. In other words, to manage it well. But they saw managing the household well as laying down the proper guidelines, not as ensuring its success. I find it very interesting Here we are in a family camp situation. And I often talk with people about their pastor. The thing I hear most is this. His children are the worst behaved in the congregation. But the Scripture is very clear that if a man can't order his own house, how can he run the church of God? And here a man proves that he has no control over his own children when they're the unruliest in the congregation. Such things ought not to be, but that's why churches ought to realize they're not hiring a man, they're hiring a family that comes with him. A wife, I think she ought to be interviewed too. More than a handful of men have been run out of the pastorate by a wife who wasn't prepared to be a pastor's wife. That's as much a calling as the other. They realized that doing everything right did not guarantee success. Some people have this mindset, well, if you do what is right, everything will work out right. The life of Jesus disproves that. He did everything right and they killed Him. There is no guarantee that if you do what is right, everything will turn out right. The only guarantee you have is that if you do what is right, you've been obedient. You've been faithful. And you have God's approval. Submission. Dirty word. But it was something that was expected from wives to husbands. They made a very interesting distinction, though. That even if a wife couldn't submit to her husband's person, she could submit to his position. God had placed him as the head of the house. And it wasn't her duty or her place to determine he was unfit to be submitted to based on her assessment of him as a spiritual leader. Daniel Rogers wrote in a book called Matrimonial Honor, if a woman wants to rule, let her win her husband's heart. Robert Abbott said the wife must take direction from her husband if he's wise and for her husband if he's an idiot. 
That seems to be awfully wise counsel, I think. But they were very careful to note that the failure of one person to do their duty before God in no way lessened the obligation of the other one to do their duty. In his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, the Puritan Thomas Brooks says that this is one of Satan's most successful tools is to get us to think that we don't have to obey Jesus Christ because somebody else didn't. Well, I don't have to do what I'm supposed to do. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. I'll do what I have to do when he does what he has to do. And no such type of selective obedience was allowed. In the same way, a man was not allowed to fail to love his wife because she was surly or because she was contrary because the standard for love is Christ's love for the church. But they also pointed out that his love for the church was not just an emotional love. In fact, I've read several sermons where they pointed out that Christ showed his love for the church in very tangible ways in Revelation in the first three chapters, where he rebuked one church, he threatened another, chastised only one of those churches, by the way, got a positive Mark for being a church, but he was loving the church nonetheless. He was giving it what it needed. Richard Greenham was one of the earliest of the Puritans. He wrote this. He said, Women, if you have never so many graces, if you have the wisdom of Abigail and all other graces that are in any woman, if you lack obedience to your husband, you are worth nothing to God. One of the things we're going to talk about in the evenings is the arenas that God puts each of us in whereby we manifest the genuineness of our alleged conversion. For children, it's obedience to their parents. That's a main one. For wives, it's obedience to their husbands. That's a main one. And for men, it's not only obedience and submission on the job, but submission to the wife and the children in the way that God set up submission for him. And that's to be the kind of husband and father the Bible calls him to be. That is how he submits. Now, romantic love was seldom, if ever, seen as a reason for marriage. The issue was more of how two persons could mutually support and comfort one another, raise godly children, glorify God the most, and build up the local church. Many Puritan marriages were comprised of people who grew romantically to love each other years after they'd gotten married. I have a friend who was just talking with someone from, uh, I can't remember if it was China or India, that was saying how much different marriage was in those countries from America. They said, here, love has to sustain marriage. In our country, marriage has to sustain love. You can remember perhaps talking with grandparents who would talk about their their spouse this way. Well, he wasn't very romantic, but he was sure a good provider. Now, I come to believe after years in the ministry that whenever there's a but in the middle of the statement, What comes after the but is what people are really committed to. What comes before the but is what they know to be true. 
typically it comes like this. <clears throat> well, I know I'm supposed to love her, but she's so hard to get along with. See, what comes after the but is the justification for disobedience. It's a cute story about John Calvin and his wife, Edelette. Calvin was a sickly man. He always needed taking care of. Edelette de Bure was a widow. She was actually an Anabaptist. Her husband had been an Anabaptist, but they were admirers of John Calvin. And her pastor came to her and said, You know, I know it's only been two years since your husband died, but I really believe you could do more for the kingdom of God if you would marry John Calvin and take care of him so he could keep his ministry going than in any other way. Would you please marry John Calvin for that reason? And how far do you think that would fly today? You parents, think of going to your daughters. So you know the minister is single and he really needs a lot of help. He needs somebody to take care of him. All he wants to do is sit around and write books all the time, but you could really serve God by marrying him. What do you think, honey? Oh, sure, Dad. Set it up for next weekend. No, 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 because we don't think in biblical terms of what marriage is for. Anyway, she said no. But the pastor kept after her, and finally she relented and gave in. And they did get married, and she was a great help to him in his ministry. In fact, there's another cute anecdote. He had told her he had one rule when he was in his study with the door closed. He was not to be disturbed unless it was a life or death situation. Well, after about three years, she'd honored the rule, and then one night she walked in without knocking and came in and stood in front of his desk, and he looked at me and said, Who died? Are you okay? Everything okay? And she said, Yes. And he got very angry. He says, I told you! You are never to come into my study when the door is closed unless it's a life or death situation. What is so important that you would interrupt my study in the Word of God? She said, Well, Mr. Calvin, I have decided after being married to you for three years that I'm in love with you, and I thought you should be the first to know. And she turned around and walked out and slammed the door. Well, that was not atypical in those days. The woman was to be a housewife, not as one Puritan put it, a field wife or a street wife or a market wife, but a housewife. And the reason for that is because Paul wrote to Titus that women with children and husbands were to be keepers at home. I'm surprised how few men are willing to preach on that passage. If you've got a husband and if you have children, you're to stay home with them. And the word there is the same word that was used for a domestic servant. Now, that doesn't mean that's how they're to be thought of. But in the Greek, it's your energy is to be used at home. That's the literal Greek. And so that's what the Scripture says. That's what it means. And so the thought of a married woman with children working outside the home was unthinkable. You begin to see how many ways... Our modern culture is destroying marriage and not just from the feminist movement. 
but by giving us unbiblical standards. Children were a blessing from the Lord. The Puritans saw their children as a gift, but a gift on loan. They were the holy seed that was to be raised in such a manner that the parents could say they'd done all that laid within them to see their children saved. But one thing that is different, I think, is that while they understood that they were responsible to God, the children were responsible for their decisions and their choices. I mean, Paul, for example, says this about relationships. He says, do all that lies within you to be at peace with all men. And he leaves open the fact that other people may not cooperate in what you're doing to be at peace with them. And the same thing is true. You can only do so much. You can't guarantee by having your infants baptized or catechizing them to come to faith. History is replete. There's one little booklet that we've done called Parents' Concerns for Their Unsaved Children. And the author goes through that history and scripture are full of examples of godly parents with ungodly children. And that there is no necessary correlation between those two things. There's a book making the rounds today that a lot of Reformed people have jumped on that basically says... If anything goes wrong in the family with the wife or the children, Dad, it's your responsibility. And the man who writes the book likens it to the military and a battleship. And he says, if anything goes wrong on the battleship, the sailor's to blame, but the admiral is responsible. And people, oh, that makes sense. Where does the Bible liken marriage to a battleship? It may be. It may be war. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says every man will give an account of whom? Himself. We will have to answer for how we parented, and they will have to answer for how they responded. It was clear to the Puritans that the children were to honor their parents, both of them, not blame their parents. That's popular today. I got a bad haircut when I was nine. I've never gotten over it. Well, if every child who got a bad haircut from the parents can blame the parents, then 100% of children can blame their parents because we all had those soup bowl haircuts. We've all had bad haircuts, but that's not the reason we turn out the way we do. It's because we have bad hearts, not bad haircuts. I read several sermons about Noah's drunkenness and his children who saw him in that state. One of the sons saw his father's nakedness, and then he went out and told the other two sons. Those two sons took a a blanket and walked backwards into the tent and dropped it over their father's nakedness without looking at him. They covered his sins. And the son who saw it and exposed it was cursed by God, and the two who covered it were blessed by God. What does the Scripture say? Love covers a multitude of sins. And so the conclusion is inevitable. We are to cover the sins of our parents, and that is one of the ways that we honor them. And honor was to be given to both parents. Instruction was to be given by both parents. Scripture talks about that in Proverbs. It talks about it in the case of Timothy, who learned his theology from his mother and his grandmother. I've heard of extremes. I've got a I wouldn't call him a friend, just an acquaintance, the Reformed Baptist. 
He told the boys in his congregation, you have to obey your mother till you turn 16, and then after that you don't have to listen to her about anything because women are not to have authority over men, and when you turn 16, you're men. That's a good interpretation of rampant stupidity. (laughs) And you wonder why God allows air to get to a person's brain if that's the most they're going to do with it. And that's assuming the air had gotten to that man's brain. Now, the main means of nurturing and instructing was family worship and catechizing. And we're going to look at family worship extensively tomorrow. We're going to look a little bit at catechizing tonight. That word catechizo in the Greek is used in Ephesians 6. One thing about, I'll just mention this about family worship. The original Puritan churches had family boxes. Later they went to benches and then to this kind of an amphitheater look. But particularly, if you've ever seen the uh, churches in New England, uh, even pictures of them, they had what they call sheep pen pews. You ever seen those? And there were, if you were in a Puritan church in New England, there would be a rectangle for each family. And mom and dad would sit at the back facing the minister and the children would sit at the front facing mom and dad. And so mom and dad kept an eye on the kids and the minister at the same time, which I think is pretty smart. Then there were little writing pads, not paper, but uh, things to write on, because the children had to take notes on the sermon because they knew when they got home they would have to answer questions from dad about the context of the sermon and at least repeat the three main points. The accountability. I remember talking to one of my elders when I saw that they did what I consider an abominable thing. We'll talk about this on Wednesday night. Dismissing the children before the sermon. And I says, why are we dismissing the children? And I says, why are they leaving the worship service? And he says, well, they don't understand what you're talking about. I said, neither do you, but you don't get to leave. (laughs) The understanding is not the issue. We'll talk about that more on Wednesday. There's no such thing as a children's church or a children's sermon. They were expected to sit through the sermon the same as... In fact, I find it, pastors, I find it tremendously interesting how far we've come from biblical times... Now we stand while we teach and everybody else sits. But in Jesus' time, the teacher sat and everybody else stood. I think we need to get back to the biblical times. (coughs) I notice when I go to a church where there are overhead fans, there's a fan over everybody but the one guy who's working. (laughs) And I don't understand how you can exude any energy and sweat just sitting there. Now that's for another time. But for those who would claim that the children don't understand, the Puritans would point to the fact that there were two unborns who responded to God while they were still in the womb. I have a friend in the Covenanter Church who has read the Scripture to her unborns as soon as she knew that she had conceived. And all six of them made credible professions of faith before the session as communicant members by the age of seven. People say, well, how do you know that helped? I don't. It helped mom. 
she sure heard a lot of scripture through six pregnancies. <coughs> and yet those same people, I, this is the funny part to me, same people who say children don't understand why should they have to hear will go home and talk to their plants. <laughs> I mean, do you see the folly that we're all guilty of? Or we'll talk to our dog and we think that because he's wagging his tail he understands what we're saying. As I said, when the service was over, children knew they had to be accountable for the sermon. Family worship was a daily event in the morning and the evening where they would read scripture, sing psalms, pray, and discuss something about the sermon. And by the way, and we'll go further with this tomorrow night, family worship prepared children for public worship. That's one of the reasons kids no longer can sit through church because they haven't had family worship times at home. It starts there. William Cooper was a New England Puritan. He said, they who keep up personal religion and devotion will keep up family religion and devotion too. Where there is the former, there will ordinarily be the latter. Wherever the godly seed have a house, God has a church. Houses will be little churches where God is acknowledged, served, and worshipped. As I said, catechizing was the main means of instructing children, but rote repetition was never the goal. I remember when my own daughter was six, she went before the session. Uh, she'd made a profession of faith. We had catechized her since she was two. She had the makings of a little feminist where the children's catechism says, God, who made you God? What else did God make everything? And it's something about uh, including men, and she added women and children. She didn't want anybody being left out of the answer. She went before the session, and they wouldn't let me in the room. They were afraid that I'd be able to feed her answers somehow, sign language, or pull on my ear, that means this answer or that answer. She was in there for 45 minutes, and I was afraid they, they had her scared and intimidated. She was crying her eyes out. And this was a PCA church. And finally, after 45 minutes, they came out, and I said, what did you do to her? They said, we're just asking her questions. And I said, well, how did she do? Well, she did fine. In fact, the guy said, if we were still in the PCUSA, she'd be an elder now. <clears throat> Well, that's just because she knew her doctrine, one, from living with a preacher dad, but two, because she studied the catechism. We were talking about the hymns. That was one of the ways that the Puritan preachers taught their people doctrine, was writing these poems. We just came out with a book called Worthy is the Lamb, which is a collection of 300 pages of Puritan poetry. And uh, next year we'll be publishing the hymns of Philip Doddridge, who was post-Puritan, but he used to, he had a very uneducated congregation, and so they couldn't read or take, write or take notes, and so he would write a hymn for every sermon every week, and that's how he taught them the doctrine of the sermon, was by teaching them this hymn, because people can memorize sing-song types of things. I know that Isaac Watts has been severely chastised for his comment I'll make David sing like a Christian. 
And the Psalms only people have just, you know, almost made him the Antichrist for getting away from the Psalms. All Watts meant was that the Hebrew Psalms don't rhyme and that people can memorize things easier if they're rhymed. And so when he, what he meant was... Now here's one that really throws even Reformed people. Unsaved children were not permitted to pray in the sense of anything that required a mediator. Because if they're unsaved, they have no mediator to take their prayers to God's throne. Prayer requires a mediator. It is a blood-bought privilege that Christ has purchased for His people. This is why I and others are against things like the Lord's Prayer in public schools. Why should a little Buddhist or a Mormon or a Muslim child pray, Our Father, when God is not His Father? In fact, if you're going to be technically accurate, Satan is His Father. They're not sons of God if they're unsaved. They're sons of Satan. They want to pray to their Father, so be it, but don't call it the Lord's Prayer. The only prayer the Puritans would allow their children to pray was a prayer that went something like this. Dear God, please change my heart to love you. Because the Puritans believed this, that if you couldn't go to God for a right heart, you could go to God, couldn't go to God with a right heart, you could go to God for one. Which I think is a great statement, particularly when people say, well, God hasn't changed my heart yet, what should I do? Then pray that He will. If you can't go to God with a right heart, go to God for one. Now, people will read Puritan sermons where they'll say, pray with and for your children. But what they meant by that was pray for your children in your children's presence. And they called that evangelistic praying. Cotton Mather talked about how important it was that parents would go into the child's bedroom, get down on their knees with the child, and plead with God for that child's soul while the child was sitting there listening to the prayer. And he says, if you do that, your children will never tell anyone that you don't love them. And they will never forget what you have done. He says, because if you can remain unemotional about the souls of your unsaved children, you have no heart. And he says, let them see you pleading with heaven, begging God to regenerate their, their little hearts and do it night after night after night Storm the gates of heaven for your children. And that is what they meant. Mather said this, Take each child alone before the Lord. Carry the child with you into your secret chambers. Make the child kneel down by you while you present it to the Lord and implore His blessing upon it. Let the child hear the groans, see the tears, and be a witness of your agonies. They will never forget it. The second thing parents could do was evangelistically discipline their children. We, uh, we have a sermon that we published in a little book by the Puritan Arthur Hildersham, which we call Dealing with Sin in Our Children. And he says how that parents need to be willing to spank their children. 
And you'd think it was written in 2004 because he brings parents' objections against these types of things. He says, but my, if I hit my children, my children might die. And he, Hildersham preached this sermon in 1621. He says, no, they only sound like they're dying, but they won't die. My daughter used to start crying before we ever touched her. If she saw us go for the belt, she started crying and we hadn't laid a hand on her yet. Then he says, someone, he says, someone will say, but if I spank my child, my child will hate me. And he says, but if God has commanded it and you don't, God may hate you. And he keeps coming back to the Scriptures, back to the Scriptures, back to the Scriptures. He says, if your child hates you for doing what God has commanded, then let them hate you. But you parents know this, there is a strong correlation between how upset your children are and how much you must be doing it right. I do remember my own daughter telling me, listen, Dad, if you ever want me to change, you're going to have to spank me harder than that. (laughs) And now she tells me, you are kind of a marshmallow. It was mom I was afraid of. Good to know now. Daniel Burgess wrote, Parents, as you value your children's souls, be sure to abhor tyranny on the one hand and anarchy on the other. And Cotton Mather said, Parents, with a sweet authority, rebuke them for and restrain them from everything that may prove detrimental to their salvation. In other words, parental discipline was a duty before God, no matter what Oprah says. You know, in Belfast, Northern Ireland now, it's against the law to spank your children. And there are a lot of people in this country that would have it that way also. But we must obey God rather than men. There was one other thing, and this is just something I've been thinking about recently that I'd like to bring to your attention And that is that the Puritans saw marriage as the norm. And because of that, they started preparing their sons and daughters for it at an early age. This is what is so distressing to me as I travel around and talk with people and see families. They see marriage and the family as an afterthought. It's what you do after You go to school after you go to college, after you go to graduate school, after you get your job, after you get your car, after you get your own townhouse, after you've seen the world, then you settle for getting married. And I have yet to see many places where parents are preparing their sons to be godly husbands and fathers from the start and their daughters to be godly wives and mothers with that as the goal. One of the things I appreciate about John MacArthur's college is they have a homemaking major for girls. I remember 30 years ago as a school teacher, there was a home ec class. And the reason I liked it is because they used to bring me meals all the time to test it out on me, and I got cookies every day and... I also got some stuff that after they left the room, but that that was because people thought that those kinds of skills were important. I have a pastor friend in San Diego, north of San Diego, 
whose daughters are all married, he still says, I check with them to make sure they're being affectionate with their husbands as they should. He says, that's the father's duty with his daughters. He says, and if I see them ignoring their husbands, I take them aside and talk to them. So, you know, this is part of your job as a wife. If you weren't prepared to do this, you shouldn't have gotten married. These are the kinds of things we need. In fact, let me ask it this way again. Do we have Scripture families or just religious families? What is it, and maybe this is something you could discuss tonight, what is distinctly Christian about our families? And it has to be more than the fact that you observe the Lord's Day or you homeschool or catechize or something like that. But you see, the Puritans understood that the family was a witness for Christ. And too often, our families are not seen as distinctly Christian. We've let the world form our views about marriage. We've let the world form our views about roles in the family. We've let the world form our views about when marriage is acceptable. My daughter said to me, when can I get married? And I said, when you're ready to be a wife and a mother. And I said, what are you doing to get ready? Well, that's the thing. If everything is a goal and marriage is what you do if nothing else works, that's never going to happen. We need to be raising our sons and our daughters and our grandsons and our granddaughters to see that as God's norm, to see that as the goal, and all those other things are lesser things. They are secondary to the high calling of a Christian home and a Christian marriage. William Googe was a Puritan. He preached for 33 straight years on the book of Hebrews. That was not atypical. Joseph Carroll preached 25 years on the book of Job. And when he got done, he looked like he had. <laughs> Googe also preached a, a series called Domestic Duties, and the book is about that thick. I think there are sections of it on the Internet. Uh, D- Domestic Duties by William Googe, G-O-U-G-E. And uh, how seriously they took this. In fact, there are several uh, instances in Puritan New England of wives and husbands who were excommunicated for not living up to conjugal duties on a regular basis. You see, marriage includes all of that stuff. But what is distinctly Christian about our families? Are we raising sons to be husbands and fathers? Which means a certain amount of sober-mindedness at an early age, but that's exactly what Paul tells Timothy, that young men ought to be taught. To be sober-minded. To be dignified. Does that sound like most of the young men you know? And what are older women to teach younger women? to love their children, to love their husbands, and to stay home. Is that what we're teaching our daughters? That's what the Scripture says. Well, there's much more, but I have used up all my time. And uh, I've probably angered you enough for a week of messages, but uh, you can take it up with God if you like. But let's just close in a word of prayer, and then I will turn it over to Bill or Lynn. Alan, okay. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank You for men who have gone before and been 
faithful to the Scriptures, who have not been afraid to proclaim it in its fullness. We pray that we will be open to these ideas and that we will be noble Bereans and go to the Scriptures and see if these things are so. And if they are, that we will conform to them. If they are not, that we will reject them out of hand. But that in all things, the Word of God will be our rule for faith and practice. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you for the water. It seems to have solved the problem.